0: Our chronological look at the career of Carol Kane continues on Praising Kane with Mark Rydell's Harry and Walter Go to New York. It's Praising Kane, and I am your esteemed host and guide, Liam O'Donnell. And with me, as always, is my awkward vaudevillian partner. Doug Tilly. Doug, what's going on in your life right now?
1: Well, Liam, I've just started coaching a baseball team, and I should say the players have some very unusual names. Uh, Take, for instance, the guy on first. uh, His name is who?
0: That's a weird name. What's the other guy's name? What? What? (laughs)
1: I don't know! Liam, (laughs) that hilarious routine that we have improvised on the spot is a reference to today's movie, Harry and Walter Go to New York, which uh, features two characters that are vaudevillians,
0: your favorite form of entertainment. I hate... I hate vaudeville, Doug. Also, I like how you, you, I I I toss it to you mm-hmm. once, and you suddenly move into host mode, and you're totally guiding it in a very hosty way. Um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I I I you know just so people know there is a bias going into this into this you know discussion because I don't love vaudeville. I I know there's a certain um, nostalgia for it uh, as a lost art. People miss the days where people would just get on stage and do whatever dumb bullshit and as long as they were white people and especially if there were white people making fun of not white people everyone would laugh but for me uh, it's not funny it's not funny stuff I'm glad it was replaced by stand-up comedy um I will occasionally take a puppeteer so I guess that's one you know uh, layover from vaudeville that's not so bad but otherwise I just think it's it's the nostalgia whenever there's a, a film that's like oh, I'm so nostalgic for vaudeville let's lift up vaudeville it like really is not my thing I don't but know. all the great silent clowns came out of vaudeville I don't I couldn't
1: possibly care about that what about? It's old Stoneface himself, Buster Keaton, a vaudevillian. His parents were vaudevillians. Mm.
0: It's
1: just not relevant to my life, Doug. Well, I mean, I feel sad for you, frankly. And in fact, here's another routine I have. I am a swami from the mysterious east. What do you think about this new character of mine? Nope. Nope. <laughs> nope. Uh, uh. I do not disagree, Liam. Uh, there's a lot of uh, shit uh that if you uh, read about uh vaudeville there just seems like a lot of garbage there but also i think we're painting with a very broad brush there's it's not just two oafs singing and dancing to terrible music there are feats of strength there's magic there's dancing there's all sorts of great stuff liam
0: yeah all sorts what
1: of great about stuff. the early days of radio that all evolved out of vaudeville probably
0: <laughs> i mean Possibly, I don't know. I mean, it's also true, Doug, that every great trope in cartoons uh, came from minstrel shows, but that doesn't mean mm-hmm. I want to bring back or praise minstrel shows.
1: Well, this movie certainly did want to bring those back. Yep. <laughs> That's something yep. we'll talk about as well. Yep. <laughs> All right. uh, the 1970s. Well, yeah. mm-hmm.
0: well, since our most recent episode uh, on Dog Day Afternoon, uh, the director of Hester Street, Joan Micklin Silver, uh, passed away at the age of 86. Uh, along with her death uh, came a barrage of interest in her fascinating and diverse career i was actually amazed i don't know if you had this experience doug mm-hmm. at the number of people i knew who were big fans of her work because i am regrettably ignorant of her films there's a couple that i've seen but other than um you know our dive into hester street i don't know that i've spent a ton of time with her work um are you a big fan of the films of joan mclin silver
1: well liam i mean we did discuss this when we covered hester street i, mean, I don't I remember both of us I think uh, both of us uh, were were kind of sadly ignorant about the bulk of her career. Right. One of the nice things after her uh, death, if you can say anything nice, comes out of such an unfortunate thing, is that, is that that seemed like there was an immediate, not just conversation, but a little bit of rediscovery. People really saying, you know, I love this. I loved uh, Crossing Delancey. I really love uh, Hester Street. And it, there was a lot of news articles about it, and I think people were really kind of cumulatively coming together and celebrating an artist that really did have a very interesting and unique and diverse career. And along with that came renewed conversation about Hester Street, a movie which, I mean, when we were talking about it a few episodes ago, it kind of felt like that conversation had kind of died away outside of maybe um, its relationship to the Jewish community, that there wasn't a lot of discussion about Hester Street in recent years.
0: Yeah, it certainly wasn't in uh, any of the you know, film conversations I was a part of, but you're right. It suddenly popped up and, and I, I didn't want to do it at the time, but I think now when it comes up, I'll be like, Hey, we talked about that on a podcast because I didn't want to like self promote over someone passing away. But it it was interesting to see all these people talking about especially seeing people who like her other films but mm-hmm. we're unfamiliar with Hester Street. And I wanted to be like, you should check it out, you know, like, because I actually know about that one. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. I got kind of excited about it. Um, another piece of Carol Kane uh, news here, uh, Saturday Night Live's Pete Davidson, who you might also know from the King of Staten Island. And, What's the other movie he did recently, Doug? That's basically the same as the King of Staten Island.
1: Yeah, I can't remember the title. I actually want to get what's what's your feelings on Pete Davidson, Liam O'Donnell? Seems like it's the kind of guy that you'd be into.
0: He was overrated until there was the predictable backlash, and now he is underrated. I mean, I think he is basically good at a couple of things, and I think that actually is ill suited to Saturday Night Live. I, I'm surprised he's been on the cast so long because he just doesn't have a lot of dynamic options you know what i mean like there's just not a lot you can do with him as a performer Um, however there is a lot of writing him off as like oh that's the pothead dude who used to have sex with uh, ariana grande and i just think that's like not fair i think he's he i think he is funny i
1: mean i do think he is a pothead and he did have sex with ariana grande so it's somewhat fair
0: (laughs) it's it's unfair because there's more to him than that uh and it's especially unfair that people use that song uh, against him, like the number of people on the internet who are ready to string him up simply because they weren't together anymore. And I'm like, how do you know that he did something wrong? People just break up, you know what I mean? Like, why are you choosing a side right now? It's very. I'd be a lot weird.
1: more surprised if they had a long and fruitful relationship than that they broke up. It seems yeah. like that's what's supposed to happen.
0: Yeah, I don't know. Anyways, point is, I do think. He's... No, Liam,
1: I'm, I still want to talk about Pete Davidson.
0: Well, I was, I'm going here. I was about to say. Okay. The point <laughs> is. I do think he's funny. I just think when he first, you know, when there's first a guy who's like the tattooed pothead on Saturday Night Live, people were super stoked on it. And I thought, I think we're overrating my man's talent. But now that there's a backlash, people are like, Pete Davidson sucks. All he does is be high. And I'm like, well, that's also unfair. I just think, I think he's, you know, he's funny, but I don't think he's a very dynamic performer.
1: I. Uh, I, I think I feel similarly to you. Here's the thing that might be controversial that I have to say, which is that Saturday Night Live um, is bad, and it's bad for a majority of the performers that are on it who are come from er- areas which their talents would be better suited uh, in either stand-up or improvisation or sketch comedy that does not require people to rush through things in a week. And that is uh, a circumstance where... So many people leave that show and go on and do really funny and amazing things, and that's mostly because the format of SNL is so restrictive and everyone is, has to kowtow so much to Lorne Michaels that it's actually sometimes funny in spite of itself as opposed to what it's designed to be. Uh, and I think that Pete Davidson gets kind of swallowed up in that. However, he also... He's not good on the show, as you kind of alluded to. He, he right. breaks all the time. Uh, and if you only saw his Saturday Night Live stuff, you might think that he sucks, which is what I thought because I only saw him on Saturday Night Live for a while. Uh, but then I saw... The fact is, there are lots of really funny people who think he's funny and are friends with him. So there's got to be something to him. And I know that's a very simplistic way to look at it. But the fact is, if John Mullaney thinks that Pete Davidson is hilarious, then he probably is. I just haven't seen it outside of bits and pieces of his stand-up, which I do think he is pretty good at.
0: I mean, I'll be honest. I am less critical of Saturday Night Live. I don't... my, But it's I'm being unfair because I think... um I'd probably be more critical of it if I... Tr- uh, I haven't attempted to watch a full episode of Saturday Night Live in maybe a decade. For me, right. Saturday Night Live only exists in clips on the internet. And so, of course, I think it's not that bad because I only take, make an effort to watch a clip when people are like, oh, hey, this shit's funny. So then All I right. watch the clip and I go, you're right, that shit is funny. Uh, but... but it's also worth noting that that has almost never been. I've I almost never watch a clip and go, "That was pretty good. I should watch a full episode of Saturday Night Live." <laughs> that just doesn't happen, and that's a show I grew up on. Like reruns of Saturday Night Live was like a part of my growing up. So the fact that like now I'm uninterested in watching the show maybe speaks more than I'm I'm saying. You know what I mean? But that being said, I don't think he's that bad on the show. I just think he has basically one joke he can do on the show and that I'm sure he probably pitches other things, but they don't let they've just never allowed him to do anything on the show other than this one thing. And so like that was funny a couple of times, but now who still wants to see him do that? You know what I mean? Like the thing where he doesn't say anything, how is that still a joke? And this is the thing with, for me with Saturday night live is that anything they do that feels safe to them is almost certainly bad. And it's only the things they're doing that they're probably thinking like, oh, who knows that this is gonna work? That's probably the only chance they have to be Absolutely.
1: Funny. It's only when they get weird that it's funny, 100%, because almost anyone whose ambition is to be on Saturday Night Live is probably a little weird. I mean, my problem with Pete Davidson was mostly that at first I thought he was like a new Jimmy Fallon, someone who I don't think is very funny at all because his whole gimmick is that he's cute and that he breaks all the time during sketches. I've It's only because I've explored his work outside of it that I know that he does have talent. Not That's not like what I found with Jimmy Fallon where everything outside of his, his work on Saturday Night Live just makes me like him less and less.
0: I mean, literally the only reason I don't wish death upon Jimmy Fallon is because <laughs> he's friends with the roots and I think there has to be some core of humanity there for them to put up with him. So I hey, just You know assume. what,
1: if someone's paying me, they're not friends.
0: They're my employer. <laughs> I I don't actually think Questlove is that possible, is that capable <laughs> of lying. Like, I just think Questlove, if he really didn't like it, would just be like, yeah, Jimmy's fine. But the fact that he actually enjoys Jimmy makes me think, like, he must not be that bad. All of this about Pete Davidson was simply to say that he um, put together a table read of It's a Wonderful Life. He did Life. not
1: put together a table read. No, he didn't? No, Ed Asner helped put it together.
0: Oh... Uh... Then what why is he featured in this thing that you put? Because
1: he plays George Bailey, the lead role in this table uh, room of It's a Wonderful wait. Life that happened
0: back in December. Oh my gosh, he's the he's George Bailey. I yes that, that can't possibly be a good casting. I, <laughs> that? I remember when it was first announced that
1: people were like, Pete Davidson. I, I do think that the unusual nature of trying to picture Pete Davidson in a Jimmy Stewart role was probably enough to get people to tune in to check it out.
0: In this thing that you sent me, though, it doesn't say what Carol Kane did. She's in it. Carol Kane is yes. in it, as well as Ellie Kemper, uh, Mia Farrow, Bill Pullman, Michael Shannon, Michael Shannon, Jr., B.D. Wong, <laughs> Diedrich Bader. It's a this is a uh, this is a lot of people in this shit. Uh, yeah, it's stacked. It's, it yeah. sounds amazing. <laughs> so why is Pete Davidson playing the? Well, you know what? I I can't have a strong opinion. I'm not a it's a Wonderful Life. Stan, I'm just not invested in it that way. So, someone who actually cares about the property she will have to let us know if it was any good, because uh, it doesn't sound like it to me with Pete Davidson in the role. But what do I know? Maybe he's great. I was just saying people underestimate him all the time. So, do you think he
1: did a Jimmy Stewart impression? That would be annoying. I don't want to hear Pete Davidson go like, "Oh, look at me! I'm George Bailey." That's, of course, that's what he says. I'm George Bailey. I'm gonna wrap a rope around the moon. Liam, and I'm going to wrap it down and I'm going to bring it down and I'm going to wrap it in a big sack of potatoes and give it to you. That's this me. Is, That's my Jimmy Stewart. This,
0: this is so upsetting that we have to take a break. So we're going to take <laughs> a break. And then when we come back, we're going to talk about Harry and Walter Go to New York from 1976. Harry and Walter Go to New York. Well, come on. Uh, Don't jiggle I'm trying! Watch the wall, Harry. Don't drop it. Don't single it, Harry. Ah. If that bank has to be robbed, then by God, let it be robbed in the name of decency.
1: Let Harry and Walter take you back to a time when everyone had dreams and anything seemed possible.
0: (laughs) The Digby Hill. Chestnut Mom versus the Master Safecracker. (laughs) Harry and Walter go to New York. Two hopelessly out-of-their-class con men attempt to pull off the largest bank heist of the 19th century. They gain the enmity of the most famous bank robber in the world and the affection of a crusading newspaper woman. It's 1976's Harry and Walter go to New York. Not the best description of the movie, but not so bad. Uh, Directed by Mark Rydell, who you may know from 1972's The Cowboys, 1981's On Golden Pond. Uh, Was also an actor, uh, had a great part in The Long Goodbye. Uh, And it was written by John Byram and Robert Kaufman. Byram uh, wrote inserts from 1976, The Razor's Edge, 1984, Duets 2000. And Robert Kaufman, of course, you know and love from Love at First Bite. Uh, Probably the greatest uh, uh, Jim Carrey performance, there is, right? Like, it's gotta be. I think, Liam, I hate
1: to embarrass you in front of oh, all no. listeners. Oh, no. Is it but not You are that... almost certainly thinking of Once Bitten when you're
0: talking about the oh, Jim no, Carrey. Oh, no. What's Love at First Bite?
1: That is the George Hamilton uh, Dracula spoon. Oh, shit. 70s. You know why
0: I got the confused, Doug? They come on mm-hmm. a dual Blu ray. Sorry, I got this confused. I know all the George Hamilton stance out there probably want to string me up, but my apologies. I oh man, I really thought that one was called Love. F- I'm glad you clarified that for me because when I go to watch it now, I'm going to be so confused. Like, where's Jim Carrey? Okay, <laughs>
1: this. <laughs> well, you know what's confusing now is like you wanted to talk about that and you mentioned that to me before we
0: started because yeah. you are a fan of Once Bitten. The Jim I love Carrey Once Vehicle. Bitten. I love it. I. I mean, I. I. I say I love it. I know it's not good, but I've been watching it since I was a kid. It's the first Jim Carrey thing I ever saw. Me when too, I, absolutely. When I figured out Fire Marshal Bill was the guy from uh, Once Bitten, it made me so happy. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> this movie, though, stars James Caan, Elliot Gould, Michael Caine, Diane Keaton, Charles Durning, Leslie Ann Warren, Val Avery, uh, Jack Gifford, Dennis Dugan, and of course, Carol Kane. That's why we're here. Um, it is a strange film, a film that uh, was generally panned uh, when it came out and was so disliked even by some of the people in it, it caused James Kahn to you know, basically lose his shit and uh, I think fire his <laughs> agent. He was not happy about it. it. In fact, the quote that Doug has pulled for us here, he gives his own movie a three out of ten stars, which is like... <laughs> You know, it's a bit of a bummer, but before we talk about uh, uh, much else about the movie, let alone uh, the response to the movie, I want to start with you, Doug, the only critic I care about. What did you think of this film?
1: (laughs) I liked it! (laughs) 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 No, I sincerely did. However whether you're going to enjoy this movie uh relies on a number of things one of them is whether you give a shit about this era of american history and particularly people who are entertainers in the uh, late 1800s uh you know kind of the the developing industrial world and developing industrial big city united states of america the other thing is you gotta love the 70s and you gotta love the actors that were big in the 70s. And in particular, in this movie, you better love James Caan and Elliot Gould hamming it up because this is what they're in for. This is what they're there to do. This movie was obviously designed to be another The Sting. It wants uh, Paul Newman and Robert Redford, they want to have that sort of chemistry in the lead. You know, there's a bank robbery. It's all played very lightly and very goofily and sillily. (laughs) It's a very silly movie, but we're supposed to be really engaged with these two characters, and if you do not go along for that ride uh, with them kind of singing and dancing and getting into trouble and getting into scrapes, then you are not going to enjoy this movie, but I did find a lot of that interplay delightful. And when Michael Caine a- a joins in as this incredibly suave bank robber, real based on a real-life bank robber that was incredibly popular in that time period, I, I find him very charming. Diane Keaton does not have a lot to do in this movie, but I found Charles Durning to be really great in this movie. So if you really come into it because of all the recognizable faces and because of all of the interplay between these famous actors, then you can have a good time. With that all said, this movie is a fucking mess. It is a mess of a movie. You Mm -hmm. can tell that when it went through preview screenings, that uh, because the audience was not laughing at any of it, they took a fucking pair of scissors to it. And there are scenes that'll just like cut off before before it, anything even happens. There's a part where these characters escape from prison. They're running around, right? And they're escaping and they get a bicycle. And the next thing you know, they're in New York City from Massachusetts. I mean, th- there's no explanation about how they even got there and in their new suits. It just feels like there are big chunks of this movie that have been cut out. The director said that all the jokes were cut out, which might explain a lot as well. That said, if your, experta- if your expectations are low because of the reputation of this movie, you can have some fun with it, which is what I
0: did. I heard it tell you, Doug. I am going to slightly disagree with you, even though I think we're – we could kind of play it off like we disagree about this movie a lot. I don't think we do to a huge degree, but there is something I want to disagree with you about, which is you said, you know, you have to be really in for the shenanigans of James Caan and Elliot Gould in this film. And I want to say that as someone who did not enjoy this movie um, (laughs) – I was actually in for the shenanigans. In fact, I would go so far as to say that some of the performance, not the whole movie, but some of the performance from these two gentlemen is almost magical. I think they are great together. And I would love to see them in a film together that had a uh, script that wasn't bullshit and that was edited by someone who had eyes. And so they would know how to like make the <laughs> scenes make sense. Because this movie is almost entirely trash to me. Um, and of course I'm a little bit biased as we said because this is a film that's very much like vaudeville and I'm I'm not you know excited about that from the start but other aspects of it I am this time in history this time when um there were uh, These crazy, you know, celebrity criminal types where um, there were corrupt uh, plutocrats and oligarchs everywhere. Uh, And when, uh, even though she's a disrespected character, people like Diane Keaton's character, you know, this activist newspaper uh, person who really wants to see the world changed, that was also real. That was also part of that uh, time. And mixing all that stuff together to me. Is really fun and really interesting. And, and like, I I think a lot of that has an appeal despite the stain of vaudeville upon it. And yet, even with, in my mind, James Caan and Elliot Gould putting in the work, and I would say even Diane Keaton putting in the work, though she's very underwritten uh, and is basically a punchline for half the movie, more than half the movie – I still think everyone is doing what they need to do it's everything else that makes a movie beyond the acting that has in my mind completely fallen short including before you even start making the movie and you put words to paper
1: I mean I I want to disagree in the sense that I think it is a very attractive looking movie it was shot by Laszlo Kovacs the the yeah okay cin- I'll give cinematographer you photographer yeah. of Easy Rider and uh, Ghostbusters. <laughs> i mean this is obviously a film but again that's the thing that kind of <coughs> made this movie's reputation is that it was a very big budgeted movie with all of these famous actors and i think that actually works against it because um i think it it me- meant that people went to see it with an expectation of it being a certain kind of movie that it has no aspiration to be. This movie should be much smaller, and really it probably should star two established comedians. Like the the interplay between James Caan and Elliot Gould uh, the- in this movie is meant to be like a Laurel and Hardy type relationship, right? We have James Caan, who's somewhat aloof. He's supposed to be the smarter one, the one who has all the plans. And then you have uh, Elliot Gould, who's more of a performer, more overtly comedic, but also much more of a coward. And, you know, they're supposed to have this interplay where they're complete opposites, but they're obviously best friends, and they, they keep supporting each other. They're they're inseparable. I don't think you see them much apart in the entire movie. I mean, I really do like those characters, but those are not the kind of characters that I, in my mind, think of when I think of those two actors. I mean, this is James Caan playing very much against the type of roles I associate with James Caan.
0: I don't know. Again, I'm not sure if I agree with you here, only in the sense that I don't think Elliot Gould is playing against type at all because he spends most of the movie, like, uh, having anxiety and yelling and I'm like yeah that's what I ex- That's there it is that's the classic Elliot Gould uh, James Khan yeah I guess but what's interesting about the role is that he's not the actual smart guy right he's the yes. guy who thinks he's smart but is exactly. actually a total idiot and I think James Khan brings something to the role I, I don't know I think for me and this is crazy about a movie that I mostly didn't enjoy I think the casting works very well um and i like them together and i like their chemistry i just don't care about those characters and there's no jokes it's supposed to i mean at least the (laughs) fact that they are vaudevillians right they should have a couple of jokes just up their sleeves and they're not funny they're not funny when they're performing that this is uh, yeah
1: you're getting to the core of one of the big problems which is as vaudevillians they're terrible they're not entertaining when they're dancing. I mean, they're just they just do the same dance routine all throughout the same movie where they're just saying, I'm Walter, I'm Harry. Like that's the joke. Like we're supposed to think that's the funniest thing in the world. But but there is a suggestion that there's more talent there, but we never really see it until kind of the big interruption of the play at the end of the movie where you can see that they are entertaining people however as viewers of that you're wondering
0: why are people entertained by this i think it helps that a i don't think they have bad voices like i like i'm Mm -hmm. glad that they have them singing in it like their voices are fine for what they are Uh, and it also helps that the play they're interrupting Everything we see of that play shows that it is terrible. It is the worst (laughs) shit you could watch in your life. And no one watching it looks like they're amused by it. It really feels like the play in the plot of the movie exists because the uh, woman who is also not just the star of the play, but is the... uh, uh, partner romantic partner of Michael Caine's criminal character uh the whole place seems to be cast around her bosom and that seems to be the justification for the thing to exist and at one point James Conn's character even says that like when he's selling binoculars you know he's like you know see see her heaving bosom and I'm like oh (laughs) so you made the subtext text I see um but uh but I I don't know like uh, here's the thing though I I I do want to want to Pull back a little bit from this because you are, we're, we're both inclined to, to some extent, trash this movie. But I also want to say that though I largely think the movie is bad, despite there being some moments I, I enjoy, I also don't quite understand the, the, For those of you listening to this podcast who have never heard of this film, this could wash over you. This is some movie you've never heard of. Carol Kane is in it. Whatever. But for people who've heard of this movie, there's a really good chance if you've heard of it, you've heard that it was very bad. And again, not just from critics – people in the movie even the people who wrote the movie are quoted as regretting the movie and I'm watching it thinking like how is this any worse than like a hundred other comedies that came out between the years 1970 and 1980 you know what mm-hmm. I mean like yeah there's mm-hmm. a ton of poorly written poorly executed comedies from the 70s it's just in my mind, was not the golden age of Hollywood comedy. There are lots of movies that are also funny, but it's not like they're all funny and here's this one stinker out of the group. And so what do you think, Doug? Why was this so universally, maybe not universally, but it seems like, in retrospect, universally disdained or hated, you know? I mean, I think it's
1: it, it kind of hangs on a few of the things that we've said. A, it just isn't very funny. It's not successful as a comedy and it's also trying to be too many things. It really, again, it's just trying to repeat the formula of the sting. It just wants to, you know, there's a big bank robbery. They want them getting one over on the uh, on the police, which again, I we obviously we both support that idea. One of the things I like about this movie is that they get away with the money at the end. I was not expecting that. Um, and that criminals are kind of deified, which I kind of like as well in some cases. But in this case, I think it's the fact that it was a combination of high expectations and low delivery on laughs, and the fact that I think that the final Final act is a real mess, and it, it doesn't end on a note where you're like, "Oh, I love this so much! I want to see these characters in twelve sequels." And one of the things I said to you before we started recording is that this was kind of like the Ishtar of the '70s, right? It has these two incredibly famous actors playing this role that's very much a tribute to an older kind of comedy, and I think that the audiences in the '70s maybe just were not not prepared or didn't want to see comedy that is a throwback to a simpler. And maybe kinder, but also certainly a um, a less boundary pushing age. So the comedy in this seems really hacky and silly, and uh, and from a very different era, and probably audiences just you know who were what one year removed from Blazing Saddles didn't want to see something like this.
0: I guess that's fair. Yeah, I I mean. I certainly don't want to praise this movie, and it's, you know, we haven't dug into it too bad, but me and uh, Doug, we haven't dug into it, I'm about to say Doug, we haven't, we haven't really um, uh, 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 gotten to this too deeply yet, but me and Doug almost have opposite views of this movie. I find this movie pretty boring and unengaging until the end, and Doug found it pretty amusing until the end. Um uh and I'm not saying everything leading up to the end is bad. Uh when they're at the prison and they're in the rock quarry stuff, I, I kind of like that. Um when uh they're figuring out the the plan, there's parts of that that I like. Um and once the actual heist gets going, I find just the excitement of, you know, Robbing a bank, pretty pretty cool. And um, if it wasn't for one key element, we're about to discuss it a little bit, <laughs> I don't even mind them doing the vaudeville stuff while they're trying to distract from the bank robbery. All that works. Uh, along the way, there's a bunch of boring stuff and some really hacky, uh, sexist jokes. There's a lot of uh, making fun of Diane Keaton's group of people. Even though, in theory, they're your heroes, the reason that they're like funny... Quirky heroes is partly that they have politics, which I think is like a little awkward. Um, I mean, I think we're still supposed to see those
1: characters as admirable, good people. They're just kind of maybe too naive for the well, kind of. Work but there's that a doing.
0: running joke that every time she talks about something she cares about, it's like kind of a joke. It's like silly. I mean, even when she gives away the money at the end, it's to the milk fund. Like yeah. she and she, you know, specifically says milk fund in perpetuity, which in 1976, you know, well, there's no milk fund, so I guess that didn't work. Out, you know, like I've never even heard of a milk fund, so uh, but you know, all that to say, um, uh, I still, despite all of that stuff, am really confused at the massive sort of anger i guess that people seem to at least the stars seem to have had for this movie uh because i I don't think it's terrible at all and and there are parts that i find kind of amusing i will agree I, i don't agree with you on the climax i think the very end let's say if we take the end of the movie and we separate it from the climax to the denouement uh i find the denouement stupid and silly in a way that isn't necessary and in fact um kind of is strange because there's a moment. so uh f- for those who haven't seen the film early on in the movie michael Caine's character ends. he's in prison at the same time as our uh, uh two vaudevillians and they end up as like his personal servants in the prison and diane keaton comes to interview him and it's from that moment on he's obviously into her and the movie ends with him sort of like taking her away to talk with him and there's a suggestion that like maybe she's interested in him which like does it she has nothing but disdain for him the whole movie but suddenly now he's not so bad i don't know it's it's just like a weird note to end the movie on um and again for a film that is dripping with naivete there are so many moments uh one of which we're about to discuss in a few minutes <laughs> that I think are like deeply cynical so for me it's not just how corny and naive the film is it's that it's a corny and naive film steeped in sexism and turns out racism as well which you don't see coming and it really hits you when it does all those dynamics are made more real because of the performances in the movie um we've talked a little bit about James and Elliot Gould uh was there any other performances from the film you wanted to talk about Doug?
1: Well, I think Charles Durning is a lot of fun as Rufus T. Crisp, the uh, the bank manager in the movie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, we, we saw him in Dog Day Afternoon. That's one of the interesting things about this movie, too. It feels like a weird fever dream version of all the movies that we're going to be talking about right now because we'll talk about it in a moment, but Carol Kane's character basically seems to come right out of a role in Hester Street. This is a movie about a bank robbery once again. Charles Durning is here from Dog Day Afternoon. We also have Diane Keaton, who is the star of the next movie we're going to be covering on this podcast, So it does feel like very much an amalgamation of the 70s and specifically Carol Kane's career at this particular time period. I also want to mention Jack Guilford, who shows up as one of the people who works at the paper that Diane Keaton is running. He has a lot of funny lines at the very end where he's trying to try to figure out the plans to open up the bank vault. I just find him a very kind of delightful figure whenever he shows up uh, in a movie. And Dennis Dugan, the director, shows up in this as well. Again, if you keep watching it, there's familiar faces all over the place, uh, including, uh, what's his name? Um, the Captain Lessard from Police Academy shows up on stage at the very end of the movie as the king in the play that they're watching. This familiar face is all over the place.
0: I was actually surprised by um, Burt Young when he yes. shows up as the warden. I was like, what is happening right now? It was, it was very much like a... Uh, again, not that that's an unfamiliar experience when you're watching films from a certain era that you get surprised by some of the the fun uh, people who are in it. But in this case, it, it's uh, a couple of people caught me off a little off guard because I I really went in only knowing a few names ahead of time. Sure. Um, I guess we've avoided it long enough. We should talk yes. about the thing, Doug. Uh huh. Uh-huh. And the thing for those of you who might be wondering who haven't watched this movie yet is um. Elliot Gould in blackface. We might as well just let's hit the nail. Let's just get it, rip the Band-Aid off and just say, in a key sequence, Elliot Gould appears to be in blackface. I mean, it doesn't
1: appear to be. He's in blackface. He's specifically referred to as a slave, uh, as an uh, yeah. opal slave, I think he even says, But, uh, but he, he puts something on his face to darken his skin. But the big thing is, I mean, that's terrible. Obviously, that's terrible, but right. not so distance from the reality of that situation, but then he starts talking in this kind of put-upon jive talk. Uh, it's or bad. It's really bad, and it's... it's uh, I mean, it's bad.
0: I kind of... I'm, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I paused it. I rewound it to make sure I was seeing what I was seeing, and then I fast-forwarded it, because I was like, I don't have the energy for this moment right now. I need to go to other parts of the movie. I don't... I, again, I'm not Uh, this happened y'all and i'm not one of these people who's like well let's just erase it and pretend it never happened this is a thing and well past this point uh we could talk about uh various forms of blackface that continued into the 80s so you know i I don't want to act like this is the single greatest crime in the history of cinema uh but it's uncomfortable for me and i don't I don't feel the need to indulge it and it really like bummed me out. It was like, I already wasn't excited about this movie, but I'm like, and then you have to do that. It's like, you know, I don't, I already don't like the flavor of this taco and now I found there's a toenail in it. I do want to say a couple
1: of things about it because it isn't straight minstrel show blackface, by which I mean, it isn't, again, I want to be really clear simply because as the, the performance goes on, he says, oh, I'm not actually a slave and actually wipes out his face with the idea that we're obviously supposed to know that he was a white person who has been made up to look black in that situation. It's supposed to continue on. And I think it's supposed to diffuse it. I don't think it works. I think it's, it, there's so much shock at the fact that it's even happening from someone watching it in 2021, that it's hard to go back on it afterwards. I also wanted to mention that there's a part at the beginning of the long goodbye, which Elliot Gould also stars in, where he Is arrested by the police and starts saying a bunch of racist stuff very similar to this. Uh, but that in that movie it's kind of I wouldn't say it's justified, but the the explanation for the character is that he's trying to get under the skin of the police. Here, remember, this is a comedy. We're supposed to be laughing. We're not necessarily we're not necessarily supposed to be think it's funny that he is out there supposed to be portraying a slave, but we are supposed to think it's funny that Elliot Gould is here in blackface, doing this jive talk, which is so embarrassing. But again, it didn't even seem appropriate what he was saying.
0: Well, and not only is he doing that, I mean, let's be clear, the movie starts with their vaudeville act, which after they do their really bad song about themselves, they then um, Mm -hmm. turn into, uh, you know, uh, a caricature of Native American girls is what they're supposed to be. Mm -hmm. And it is... I mean, they don't get a chance it doesn't nothing really goes anywhere with it, but it's enough for you to go, well whatever they were going to do next is bad. I don't know yeah. what it was going to be, but it was going to be bad. And and for a movie that seems to not be critical of vaudeville, but to be fucking nostalgic for it, that was a poor choice, I think. I mean, let's face it. This this
1: movie has almost nothing but white faces in its entire Cast. It's not like you can make this 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 suggestion that there's some sort of commentary on display here. This is a white ass fucking movie, right?
0: And it's you know it continues this idea that you see in a lot of these movies, which is like somewhere after World War II, black folks just kind of showed up, but prior to that, you could be anywhere in New York City and not see any people of color, and that's just like. Uh, guys, it's just not real. Like, that's just not the, the numbers don't play out, you know, like they they, they were around. So the idea that you could do a movie uh, with, you know, that they're walking full on through the streets of New York City and it's just a, a sea of white people everywhere, not a not a non-white face to be seen. It's and it's especially in a real. movie that is
1: obviously acknowledging that there is an immigrant experience happening. Yes. And even though it's not, it's not like front and center, it's something that is suggested all throughout, but th- those immigrants are only white immigrants
0: it's uh, I, again, we, we are not, despite what people may think of us, we are not the social justice podcast. We're not here to take all your old films and remind you about how problematic they are though. You know, when do you guys hear what we're covering next? You might wonder what we're going to do, but, uh, but
1: I want to, I mean, I should say, I mean, like I, I posted on Twitter. I was like, I'm really digging this movie. I'm having a lot of fun with it. And then it's like, Oh, Elliot, <laughs> Elliot right. just showed up in blackface in the movie. And that's, It's Look, believe me, even if you're hardened to this sort of shit, it will take you by surprise if you're not expecting it.
0: Yeah, yeah, I got to agree with you on that one, Doug. And I got to say, like, we can't claim that it ruined the movie because we weren't, well, you were into it. For me, I can't claim it ruined the movie because I wasn't that excited about the movie in the first place. But it is sort of, it takes something that is innocently not working and then gives it a tinge of like, Again, you know, it's taking something that just isn't for you you know, like, oh, okay, this is a soup, it exists, it's not for me, whatever. And then the waiter comes by and fucking spits in it. It's like, it, it gives it a nasty angle that like, I just think like, okay, well, especially when the the take on the movie from multiple people involved with making this movie is like, you know, we tried to write something a little more innocent and the world wasn't ready. And I'm like, how is this innocent? And that's just the most aggrievous example. I would say that throughout the film, there are jokes, you know, from the bank manager basically forcing a woman to sleep with him so he doesn't like take her home to uh, even the caricature of, uh, an, of, uh, of an immigrant to this country that Carol Kane is playing. There are lots of things in this film that aren't innocent at all. So to say mm. the movie's not funny because we were just writing something a little more fluffy and innocent is just a, 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 a cop out of the fact that your movie isn't funny. You know, and, and it doesn't – you can't just say, like, well, if we had been a little more gritty. I mean, one man literally says, like, well, I just went through therapy, so I, I wanted to write something more positive. <laughs> Eat my entire ass. <laughs> Fuck you. There's – you know, uh, apparently you didn't talk about any of your other shit going on in therapy. Like, get out of my face. So, I, I mean, that that's sort of how – I again, not that this movie incurs that much ire to me, but some of those more negative elements takes a movie that I probably wouldn't have a problem with and makes me a little – a little annoyed by the film
1: i mean it was the era where people were taking those big swings that even hollywood movies were taking a lot of chances and this movie i mean if nothing else if nothing else this movie feels like it it's trying to take a chance and make a piece of entertainment you know what it's funny even as i say that i'm not really convincing myself because at its core, this movie is just trying to imitate another successful movie. Yeah. So no, I'm for. I'm even the concept is a little bit cynical because even the time period is supposed to be you know in the past, like the Sting was. Like I mean, it, right. so to me, it's it's hard to love the. It's certainly hard to take seriously the idea that the people behind it were trying to make this kind of pure, uh, optimistic comedy. Not just because of the cynicism that that you see on display. I see a little bit of that myself, but mostly because if you're if you feel like you were trying to make an optimistic comedy and failed and the comedy isn't funny the failure has nothing to do with the optimism it's the fact that it wasn't funny
0: right and i don't think they're willing to own up to that and whatever you know i i, I we don't have to go on and on let's let's shift gears here and specifically focus on the focus of this podcast carol kane <laughs> and we've already kind of mentioned it but it does feel like her character here is the comedic version of her character from Hester Street. I think that's very fair. And I wanna I want to uh, own for you, the audience, this is an insight from Mr. Doug Tilly. I did not realize this on my own, but when you brought it up, Doug, I thought, oh my God, that's like way accurate. I mean, she basically is not just playing, not only does she look like the character, she still
1: has her accent from Hester Street, basically. Right. Uh, and her is her hair is similar. Similar and the, the sunken eyes and the very kind of de- demure character. I mean, she has probably what, four lines in the entire movie it, it it's so strange it's like it's exactly what we said that she was afraid of that carol Kane was afraid of after the success of it is there's not that many roles like that role in Hester Street. So people have to be able to see me as something else if I'm going to get some success out of it. This is exactly what she was worried about. Oh, we need an immigrant woman in this role to play this this kind of demure character. Oh, we just saw her get nominated for Academy Award. Let's get her p- to play the exact same thing. I sometimes think that when we hear about actors like getting worried about getting typecast, that, that you're like, oh yeah, that's just silly. We know your whole career. So we know that you have all these other abilities. But casting directors really do seem to be really kind of myopic when it comes to the work that people can do, that if you're Adam West, you can never go back to doing a serious role after doing Batman because you're Batman, and that's all you can be. And for Carol Kane, she was this character, even though we know, because we've already seen her in other roles, that that is just a very small kind of
0: uh, uh, smidgen of what we know she can do. It's not only that, too, but she eventually... Um, really does become known for comedic roles. So seeing them try to shoehorn into her into a comedic role here by having her do, again, maybe the guy people who directed this or the people who, kept, you know, whatever, maybe they're not influenced by Hester Street at all. But it is a weird coincidence, right? It's just, it, it has to be. And not only that, of the, of the uh, various people who are part of this newspaper, she is someone that you would think of as like a, Not a pivotal role, but she, they do a lot of reaction shots to her face, which the cynical part of me, Doug, was like, is this cause she uh was was nominated? Is that what we're doing right, right, right now? Right. It's like there's a whole team of people we could do these reaction shots to, but let's cut to Carol Kane. But like she doesn't have any she doesn't have that many lines, but nope. you see her face more than you see the other newspaper people, unless they have more lines. And so that's I'm not like, even sure what her character is supposed to
1: be. I think she's the wife of the photographer, but that's never explicitly said. No. She works at the paper, but we yeah. don't know what she does there. Like she doesn't really have a character. She is
0: it's so strange to think. I mean, that, she's literally just a reminder that there are Eastern European I- immigrants. Like that's why is, she's there.
1: This is just as much of a bit role as those early roles that we've talked about on this podcast. All right? I mean, where she, it, if anything, her role in the last detail was much larger than we see right, here. Right. Uh, so yeah, this is, is much closer to something like, um, like a carnal knowledge, where she shows up for a single scene. I mean, her screen time is basically equal to that. So it's it is kind of unusual to think that she had gotten this amazing praise for this role and it really legitimately sincerely did not seem to help her career at all all. though maybe maybe it was just kind of biding its time i mean this movie was probably made not too long after the release of hester street maybe it, it was gearing up to a role like that but i mean the role that is going to help her reach that kind of other level is coming up immediately next, the movie we're going to talk about on the next episode.
0: Yes. Well, so let's go ahead and wrap up here and say, look, if you are a a faithful listener to this podcast because you're devoted to Carol Kane and you want to try to catch as many great Carol Kane performances as you can, you can go ahead and skip this. Like, the movie is not that great and she doesn't do much in it. Um, If, on the other hand, you think a supremely innocent and yet weirdly fucked up uh, comedy with James uh, Khan and Elliot Gould, sounds like a good time, then uh, yeah, check it out. I don't know. It's I, I'm not here to tell you what to do per se, but I, I don't think it's great.
1: I mean, I think if, if the idea of a kind of buddy comedy with James Khan and Elliot Gould with Michael Caine walking in to steal a few scenes sounds like fun to you, that you can still wring a lot of enjoyment out of it, mm. but you have to go in with expectations that all of that sounds better than what you're actually going to get.
0: Also, if you hate jokes... Like, if you want to see a movie that feels like a comedy, but there's no jokes, that would be a good – you could watch it then. That would be a good call. Uh, Okay, I'm being a jerk. Okay, uh, on our next episode, we're going to be talking about 1977's Annie Hall, directed by who? (laughs) Who directed this movie, Doug? I've never seen it. Who directed this movie? Directed by the beloved
1: and unproblematic director Woody Allen.
0: Wow. Phew. I can't wait. I'm hoping to do a, a bit of a dive on his personal life before we cuz I don't know him. I've never seen a Woody Allen film of any kind. I mean, Liam, so, we are being being
1: facetious here. Right. We we have run into an issue uh, that we knew we were going to head into, which is that both Liam and I have the same complex feelings about the career and life of one Mr. Woody Allen, a, a person who is rightfully called a genius by many and has made a lot of the greatest movies ever made, maybe his gr- crowning achievement being Annie Hall, and uh, but also is, in my opinion, uh, and, and I think the opinion of many, a despicable human being, kind of a piece of shit, uh, who who we don't want to celebrate in any su- in a significant way. So we're going to have to decide how we're going to tackle Annie Hall in our next episode.
0: Yeah. I mean, we want to talk about the movie. It's a part of Carol Kane's career, but it's hard to do in a way that doesn't involve us at all justifying or celebrating uh, Woody Allen so sounds like you can't separate the art from the artist so
1: I mean I can I, I don't have mm. to think about that sort of thing it's I not mean, like this is a autobiographical fucking tale about a person's life and how <laughs> half his movies are about a person that's exactly like Woody Allen right having having relations with a woman that's much much younger than himself I don't know why people can't separate that from the artist um,
0: I mean I don't usually have this issue because I'm a hater anyway so most problematic people I could just write them off because I didn't like most things so i you know i i've I've just was like oh woody allen sucks sounds good and i'm just on board but i hear that i'm missing out so we'll see what happens um doug if people aren't offended by the fact that we're going to talk about uh andy hall and want to hear more from our podcast uh where can they find us on the internets
1: well, they can go over to CinePunks.com where they can see all the latest episodes of this podcast and many others under the CinePunks name. Or you can go over to CinemaSmorgasbord.com, which has all of the Cinemasmorgueboard podcasts, including ones devoted to Jackie Chan, of course, Carol Kane. We have the Filipino uh, Peter Lowry Vic Diaz, as well as many more. Check that out or go to Twitter at CinemaSmorg, S-M-O-R-G, or you can do a search for Cinemasmorgueboard on Facebook as well.
0: I really appreciate that, Doug, and I hope that people will do all those things as well as follow us on our personal social medias. You can find me on Twitter at liam rules r u l z, and you can follow Doug on t- on Twitter at uh, Doug underscore Tilly, spelled T i i l l e y. That's right. I knew you're gonna cut me. Off. I knew you're gonna do it. <laughs> uh, it's my anyways, Thanks for listening. We really appreciate it, uh, and hopefully you'll check us out here next time. Until then, have a good evening.
1: Good night. I'm Harry. I'm Walter. And now it's time to say, soul, take it away. To the darkest heart of Africa, Stanley came one day. I say, I'm, I'm looking for a chap I know. I think he's lost his way. Perhaps, I say, perhaps his eyes deceived him, for the light was starting to dim. Oh, so dark, yeah. He said? Hmm? Oh, yes, uh, that fellow in the boiling cauldron. Yes. I say, it looks a bit like him. Like him? Like him, yes. Like who? Him. I say, um, they're um, Dr. Livingston, I presume. You presume the jungle tom-toms answered with a boom, boom. You've got the right river, but the wrong yacht The right chowder, but the wrong pot You've got the right foreign legion, but the wrong recruit The right cigarillo, but the wrong cheroot. You've got the right knickers, but the wrong knee